Hi everyone and welcome or welcome back to another episode of Nightmare Now. This is the show where we talk about all kinds of crazy spooky stuff happening in the world around us or the imperceivable world around us. Weird stuff from history, science, folklore, and more. I don't really have a whole lot to report on as far as my life's going. Life is good. Have a <laughs> Hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Check out uh, that movie Thanksgiving if you haven't seen it. It's a classic. I think this time we can just jump right into the topic without further ado. I've got a cool true historical tale this time. I was listening back to last week's episode to do the editing on it, and I remember talking about how this or that story would have made a great creature feature movie. And it got me thinking, what what other stories do I know about that would make good creature feature or horror monster movies or whatever? And there's one that I always go to, mostly because I talked about this story all the time in college to make me sound interesting. Didn't really work, but <laughs> hopefully some of you guys find it interesting. Nonetheless, the story kicks ass, and it's simultaneously both true and unbelievable at the same time. Let's get into it. This is the gritty reboot origin story of the Killer Bee. So it all began in 1922 with the birth of bright-eyed baby boy Warwick Estevam Kerr. Kerr? I think it's Kerr? Care? I'm going to go with Kerr for this one. I guess it actually began 120 million years ago when bees first evolved, but 120 million years is a lot of history to cover in a under-an-hour podcast, so I'll spare you some of that, and we'll skip straight ahead to where the story really gets interesting. Warwick was the son of Scottish immigrants who had immigrated to the U.S. and then had immigrated to Brazil. So he was born in Brazil, and he led a life pretty much dedicated to science. A couple of quick facts, I guess. His early biography isn't really so important as the rest of the story, but he got multiple degrees. He was an agricultural engineer. He eventually got his doctorate. He worked at several different universities. He worked at Columbia. He worked at uh, University of California, Davis. He was a department head, a professor, and a dean. I thought a department head and a dean were the same thing, but I don't know. It's been, it's been like, what, three years since I got out of college? Probably more. Jeez. Six? Ugh. Yeah, I don't know the difference between a dean and a department head, and nor do I really care. He was a research director as well. He worked in genetic research labs in addition to his academia work. An interesting little tidbit, he studied at Columbia with Theodosius Dobzhansky, who was a famed geneticist, and he was also the grandson of Fyodor Dostoevsky. So this is kind of fun, small world bit of trivia, I guess. Not really relevant to the story in any way, but I thought it was interesting how things tie together, and it would be a crime not to include it, but I guess I'll spare you the punishment of more 1800s Russian literature talk. Most importantly of all the things Warwick Kerr did outside of those contributions to society were his dabblings in mad science, and his constant experimentation and the research of bees. In short... He dreamed of creating the world's most powerful Pokemon, I mean B, and he succeeded. And I guess at least until the murder hornets showed up, but that was in what, 2019? That's a, that's a whole nother episode entirely, I'm not going to get into that. In the Americas, meaning North, South, and Central America, we were using European bees to produce honey. Obviously, Europe isn't a tropical climate like much of South America is, especially the northern part of South America, more towards the equator. In his home country of Brazil, Kerr 
tried to interbreed a species of bee that could do better at producing honey in a hotter climate. There were African bees from Tanganyika, <laughs> I have no idea if that's how you say it, a UK colonial territory in what is now modern-day Tanzania. It existed from 1916 to 1961, and this particular bee was the, the East African lowland honeybee. It was adept at producing honey in a hotter climate, way more so than the European bees, so obviously kind of what he was looking for. They were much more aggressive than European bees. And before the beekeeping crowd <laughs> comes at me, I, I know they're more defensive. And that's the uh, preferred nomenclature there. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But for intensive purposes right now, they're more aggressive than European bees. And they send out attacks with three or four times as much of the attack force of a hive of European bees. And they pursue threats from further away. So that's that aggressiveness. But we'll get into that a little bit more later. They swarm more. So that means kind of expand their hive to a new location more often than the European honeybees. Who would rather wait out a slow season or, you know, the plants in one area die. So it will expand to another area to take those plants instead. The European bees will kind of hibernate a little bit and wait out the storm, so to speak. The East African honeybee evolved with much less of a focus on keeping their hive warm because they lived in East Africa, so they had an energy to spare in their behavior compared to the European honeybees. It's kind of funny how creatures that evolve in a certain part of the world do better in that part of the world than creatures who haven't, but, but that's just pretty basic. But that's not to say that the East African lowland honeybee had it easy in their, out there in the hotter climate. They had to deal with an awful parasitic competitor called the Cape Bee. This isn't really relevant to the story either, but it was horrific, and I, I don't think I'd do a specific episode just to cover this. So we'll, we'll dive into it real quick. So they have to deal with the Cape Bee. And what the Cape Bee does is it has... Are you confused with the bee species yet? Don't worry, there's only like 29 honeybee species. So what the cape bee does, I don't even know if the cape bee is actually a honeybee or just something that looks like a honeybee and infiltrates honeybees. But anyway, what the cape bee does is a cape bee female looks exactly like the East African lowland bee female, namely the queen. So they can just go into the East African lowland bee's hive and just get treated like the queen bee, which means preferential treatment, first in line to get the honey. I, I don't remember a whole lot of what I learned in bee class in, in college, but they're generally pretty amicable to the queen. And so picture this in terms of like British royalty or whatever. Imagine that Queen Elizabeth R.I.P. Is, um, is sitting there in Buckingham Palace. And then one day, an almost identical clone of her just kind of shows up walking through the bushes. And they're like, oh, you, madam, you look lost. So they take her in and take her to another room and they never end up meeting. But everybody's like, oh yeah, I saw the queen over here. She was just eating a glass of honey. And then that's they're like, oh, that's weird. I just saw the queen over here tying the prince's shoes or whatever the hell British royal royalty do. So there's there's essentially two queens going on at the same time and and the cape bee is a freeloader that just hangs out in the hive. But it gets much worse because the cape bee infiltrator queen can lay eggs parthenogenetically, meaning she doesn't need no man 
and produces live viable eggs asexually. So these eggs hatch into direct genetic clones of herself that can also produce more of these eggs and make clones of themselves until this process continues on. So going back to if it was at Buckingham B B Buckingham Palace, I don't know, Buckingham <laughs> Palace with bees, the fake queen comes in, and then the next day there's two of the fake queens and one of the real one. And then the next day there's six fake ones and one real one. And as time goes by, there's more and more direct clones. It's like somebody came into your house and like impersonated your mom. And then the next day there was three. And then the next day there was five. I don't know why I'm doing the your mom bit because it's kind of a illustrative metaphor to the illustrative metaphor I was already doing to the actual thing. So as these fake queens show up and multiply, obviously they get preferential treatment from the drones and everything, and the whole hive just completely collapses and they eat all the honey and resources that the bees have gathered. And it's just like straight out of the bee, the bee movie, the thing edition. I don't know. There's just something so like evil. I'm going to do, I am going to do an episode on parasites, probably a whole series on parasites. And Sarah, you don't have to listen to that one. I'm sure it's going to be gross. Parasites can be freaky things. And bees also have to deal deal with this other parasite, which is a, um, some kind of mite. I think it was Varroa mite. I did remember some things from that random beekeeping class I took. But again, they have to deal with that. They had to deal with uh, honey badgers. They had to deal with whatever kind of bears they have in Africa. Whatever likes to eat honey. So that's why they were more defensive slash aggressive, whatever. So that was the East African lowland honeybee that would do better in a tropical climate than a European honeybee. Specifically in this case, the Italian honeybee. So in 1957, Warwick Kerr, he imported those African lowland bees to interbreed with his Italian bees, a subset of the European honeybee, that although they didn't make quite as as much honey when it was hot out, they make a lovely ravioli and have a penchant for the gabagool. He figured that the two bees combined over a few generations could combine their strengths and you would get a kick-ass warm weather honeybee that would make honey better than the European honeybee. <laughs> I'm saying honeybee so many times. Drink every time I say honeybee. Don't actually, because you'll probably end up in the hospital. So they wanted to make a kick-ass warm weather bee that could make honey better than the European bee and one that picked up the more laid-back, less aggressive temperament from that European bee, but could still make honey like the African lowland bee. That's when it all went wrong. And if this were a visual medium documentary style thing, this is when you you invert the picture where it's like everything was fine until it wasn't. (laughs) And then show show the B in negative. It just takes his yellow stripes and his black stripes and switches them. And that's you end up with a a B with a yellow head. And that's the (laughs) the evil documentary B. Kara was using what's called a queen excluder on his 29 combined beehives. So he had the East African lowland bee and the Italian honeybees in the same hive so that they could interbreed. But at the same time, he had a queen excluder, which is basically a screen door for the queen queen's chambers. So one set of the bees could go in and out as they pleased. And Kerr was using queen excluders on his 29 combined beehives. So he, where he had the Italian bees and the East African lowland bees from Tanganyika, <laughs> the modern day Tanzania. 
And what that basically was was a screen door that turned each hive into a like a screen door cuck room so that they couldn't breed with the local European bees. So the ones that were wild, they could just do their thing in the hive. The African and Italian bees could get it on and just hang out in their little fenced-in area. And that's when it all went wrong. In late October of 1957, a beekeeper that was covering for him or visiting the facility or something i'm not really sure as far as i can tell his or her name is lost to history saw the bees struggling to move around the screen the screen from this queen excluder thing them bees be having a hard time let me help you little buddies and he just take or she i don't know if it was a he or she he just takes the screen off of all the hives my understanding is that it was like one screen per hive if the beekeeping listeners want to tell me i'm wrong like i don't know if the queen excluder was like something around the whole compound that would protect all the hives at once but it seems like it was per hive that this would be an effective solution for so like don't you think after the third one or something you would realize that maybe these are supposed to be like that i'm talking about the the screen doors blocking everything in After 10, 20, 25 more after the first one, maybe it just seems like as somebody that would be a beekeeper, he would probably know what the queen excluder is and what it's supposed to do. And if he's watching these super genetically modified prize bees, maybe he wouldn't have released all of them one after another 26 times. Like, I feel like at that point, there's some intentionality behind these actions. I get if you ha- if you see the bees struggling in one hive and you're like, oh, that doesn't look quite right. And then you just walk over to every single one and you're like, oh, that doesn't look right. Oh, that doesn't look right. Oh, that doesn't look right. And then every time you do this, there's an invasive species hybrid super bee flying out of there. Like, I don't know, maybe he just got murdered immediately by bees. Like, as soon as they opened the Queen Excluder on the first one, they just all swarmed him and opened up the rest of the hives themselves. But at some point, you gotta be like, you know, maybe I should call Warwick and see why he has those things up here. I I really can't find much on the guy that let all the bees out. It wasn't Warwick Kerr himself, at least not according to any of the documents I could find. I I don't think he would do this because he was a respected bee geneticist and kind of knew the risks of breeding all these bees like that. That's why he had the queen excluders. So it was definitely a third party. And I have a completely weird, unfounded conspiracy theory about who that might have been. But we'll get into that towards the end of the episode. So anyway, our unnamed, apparently unqualified interim beekeeper released these genetically manipulated super bees into the wilds of Brazil. Of course, they immediately get the fuck out of the beehive of Dr. Moreau, where they're all being forced to interbreed and have have this weird hybrid genetic control program. It's what the greys are doing to us. And they start breeding with the native populations instead, all over the place, and start rapidly expanding both to the north and south. And this basically creates bee xenomorph terminators, and they're just out in the wild. So by 1970, the entire Amazon basin had been consumed. Not, not consumed isn't the right word, but colonized, I guess. The crossbred bees called, now called Africanized honeybees, and this is 
the hero of the story, the anti-hero of the story, the killer bee himself, the Africanized bees, and unofficially the killer bees. And they were ruthlessly efficient at replacing native populations. And once Pandora's box was opened, there was no closing it again. This is where in the movie you see like a map slowly getting filled with red and like the screams of people dying as they're stung thousands of times. And just like from central Brazil, this splotch of bee covering the entire South America headed southward and going up through Central America. Speaking of Central America, they reached it in 1982, leaving a swath of destruction in their fluffy black and yellow wake. They were moving pretty quick. Some estimates put their expansion at one mile per day. It wasn't always that. I think that was like an average or something. But for a bee, that's a... That's a pretty good distance. By 85, the killer bee had taken southern Mexico and had even been spotted in an oil pipe shipment in California. In 1990, the first permanent colony of killer bees was discovered in Texas. And over the next several years, the bees continued their inexorable tide northward, overbreeding, killing and replacing the native European bees. And this is one thing I also couldn't find is I keep saying native European bees, but they're in North America. Were bees originally an import? I'll, if I find the answer to that, I'll, I'll post it on the social media. So you have to follow me there. Those are all available at nightmarenow.com to find out whether or not the Afri the <laughs> European bee was always here in America or whether it's an invasive species in its own right. Skip ahead to the 2010s and there's human deaths, there's attacks in Utah, Georgia, Tennessee, Colorado, as far north as Maryland. We can't hold them forever. And obviously, as the climate warms... The bees have an easier time expanding northward and southward. But I'm not going to get into any kind of climate change narrative one way or the other here because it's <laughs> it feels like a good way to alienate half of the people listening to this one way or another. But they're here. They're among us. But w what is it that makes them killer bees anyway? There's the aggression. The bee apologists and the, quote, scientists will be like, Actually, it's more of an acute defensiveness. So the African bees, like I said earlier, have to compete with scorpions, ants, termites, and the ever-popular honey badger, known for its uncaring callousness in the face of a single bee sting. It doesn't care. Because of this heritage, the Africanized bee, which is the one that bred with the Italian honeybees and cares hives in 1957 to create the killer bee, the Africanized bee. I'm just trying to keep this straight for everybody. It demonstrates this defensiveness in a number of ways. <sighs> they have more guard bees. They have a wider guard alarm radius of 1,600 feet from which just walking by can disturb them. Loud noises, vibrations, funny looks, off-color jokes, etc. will all set them off. They are the most easily provoked of all the bees. So they have the more aggressive response 
from farther away and they will pursue threats to the hive a much greater distance than their European counterparts. That's up to a quarter of a mile. And a quarter of a mile is a pretty long distance for a bee that's like a half an inch (laughs) across than it is for a person. So keep that in mind. They are absolutely fucking relentless. There's reports where you see what they do on Winnie the Pooh, right? Where they like will jump into the water, jump into a pond. And sure, that works for the friendly neighborhood European bee, which is probably what Pooh Bear was dealing with. I'd have to check the timeline for when, what is it, K.A. Milne or something? I don't know. I don't have the Winnie the Pooh lore info up right now, but I don't know if that was pre or post 1957 i don't know if winnie the pooh dealt with killer bees that'll be something for the follow-up i guess um but anyways so they could dive into the pond you could dive into a pond to try and escape them and sure that works for the european bees but these africanized bees will buzz around the surface of the water waiting for you to come up for air in order to (laughs) in order to sting your stupid face for it just existing within a quarter of a mile of their hive. And they will sting you repeatedly. They send the pain again and again and again. Their sting actually isn't inherently more venomous or dangerous than a European bee on its own. And it's not more painful or anything. So if you got stung by a European bee and an Africanized bee at the same time, you probably wouldn't notice a difference. It's estimated that 500 to 1100 stings is a lethal dose. But depending on the location, like if they sting you 100 times in the eye, that would probably do the trick. Or if you're allergic, uh, there's so many things that can go into it. So there's many, many reports of bee stings being fatal. I mean, even just one time a bee sting can be fatal if you have a hella allergy. But if you don't have an allergy, like as low as 100 bee stings can kill you. But the Africanized bees send many, many times as many attack bees as as their natural European counterparts, both proportionately and far overall in number because they group in far larger numbers than the native European bees. So just a quick recap. They send more people, they send more bees to attack you for less provocation from further away and will chase you many, many times as far up to a quarter of a mile away. And they sting 10 times as much as the European bees. I think individually they can only sting you once, but because of all those factors combined, you know, they'll hit you from farther away, they'll chase you longer, and they'll appear in greater numbers. On average, a swarm of Africanized bees will sting you 10 times more than a swarm of European bees. So, you know, what's not to like about them? Oh, and also, they live in the ground as well. Because why the fuck not? Any vibrations above ground can trigger a defensive response from a hive of ground Africanized honeybees. And the last reason we call them the killer bee is because they kill about two people per year, apparently, and well over a thousand people overall. And I took some time looking into those statistics because they do not match up at all. So if you take 65 years, I, I think 65 years is about give or take from 1957, and you say generously... I think the original statistics was that they kill one or two people per year. But even if they kill two people every year from 1957, that's only 130 people. And that's that's a pretty good run for an insect, I guess. 
But what happened to the other 870 people? Were they just killed in the Great Bee War of 1989? Wait, when did the Wicker Man come out? I don't know. But obviously there is some disconnect between the average stats and the total stats. And I don't know if that's just because they go a couple of years without killing anybody and then one year they kill 15 people and it all averages out to about one or two people per year but just be careful with giant hives of bees all right don't go around uppercutting beehives if you can avoid it i know we, we used to throw rocks at beehives those are more wasp nest at our playground and i ended up i think we had a kid that we we threw a rock and then that's how he found out he was allergic to bees and he wasn't in school for like a week I might be making that up, but I think that happened. So just leave bees alone as a general rule. Of course, they also, in addition to being able to kill humans, they're able to kill animals, pets, horses, wild animals. I don't know why I had that listed, (laughs) because obviously animals covers wild animals and pets and horses. You have stuff like livestock. Pretty much nothing is sacred to the Africanized honeybees, especially non-Africanized honeybee hives. So Kerr was labeled a madman by the Brazilian government, a madman and a mad scientist by the Brazilian government and the world, but it seems like everyone kind of got over it. Because later on, he won a bunch of science awards and worked until 2019 when he was working on bee viruses in Wuhan, China. Didn't expect that, did you? No, I'm just kidding. He didn't didn't do anything like that. But, I mean, it really wasn't his fault that the bees got let out. It was a wildly irresponsible breeding program with the best intentions. So he was a disgraced bee biologist genetic manipulator later went on to do a lot of great work in bee genetics believe it or not he did get several scientific hall of fame type things and he died a respected figure in beekeeping history at the ripe old age of 96 in 2018 at his home in sao paulo brazil but that just leaves one more question Who was the mysterious beekeeper that actually did let them all out that fateful October in 1957? Who indeed? A little over a decade before what I'm calling Bee Day in October of 1957 was a little something called WW2. Nazi party members, collaborators, SS officers, and more assholes were desperately trying to escape the Third Reich collapsing out from under their feet. And where could they go? If only there was a part of the world that had already harbored an unusually large number of German expats and had for some time now. That part would be South America, Chile, Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, all over the place. There were Germans and on top of the honest Germans that had migrated there, you know, post-World War One, trying to get the fuck out of Europe, you had fascist sympathizers in the governments of those places especially argentina we'll we'll get into that on another episode and i'll I'll cover that phenomenon of south american nazis hitler clones jewish nazi bounty hunters and lost treasure and another (laughs) that's going to be another episode probably a series because it is insane what was going on in south america after world war ii whether you believe that like hitler escaped there or whatever like ridiculous conspiracy theory The fact of the matter is, a lot of them did make it over there. And that shit is insane. 
So was that just an ordinary, slightly slow, dim-witted beekeeper that released 26 hives of hybrid super bees onto an unsuspecting world just by accident? Or was it a young adult clone of Hitler himself? Or, you know, less fantastically, some other Nazi scientist jackass. There was no shortage of them floating around the world post-World War II, so it could be. Who knows? I have really not anything to back that up. But I think that this is just such an amazing story of kind of just like the quintessential escaped lab experiment where we tried to create the most efficient bee for humanity's purposes. And in the end, we got screwed over because like we picked up the worst of both sides. Actually, we didn't get the worst of both sides. The killer bees make a killer honey. But yeah, I mean, it probably wasn't a Nazi scientist, but I really can't rule it out. It really sounds like something straight out of Hellboy, right? Nazi scientist Splinter Group releases demon bees to attack America for uh, to avenge the Third Reich. Once again, we have a great movie premise. And that's that's pretty much it. That's the story of the killer bee and how it was bred to be this great gift to humanity where it would make so much honey and be docile and happy and get along with all the other bees, but ended out getting cast out into this cruel and different world before it was ready. And the consequences of that action are thousands of deaths, uh, a thousand, like over a thousand people dead, and who knows how many animals and stuff and just countless, countless European honeybees. So a quick moment of silence for them. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I am glad to have you guys here. Check out the site at nightmarenow.com to get in touch. We've got some awesome suggestions and a special shout out to everyone that had my little show in your Spotify rap. I loved seeing that. I'd say sweet dreams, but we all know it's going to be. Wait, what is that? No, not the bees. Ah, they're in my eyes. Nightmares now. Catch you next week.